My name is Sivia Cohen. I'm the founder of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that specializes in developing strategic campaigns that help nonprofit organizations connect with their audience. I've had the privilege of meeting some inspirational nonprofit leaders and doers who have devoted an untold number of hours to achieving their mission. Many of these incredible individuals have shared a similar frustration with me along these lines. No one knows what we really do, not even our own volunteers. It's so hard to explain all of our different services. People think our organization is a lot smaller than it is. That's why I created this podcast, to give non-for-profits a platform to share their mission with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you as much as they inspire me. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I am so excited to have with me a very, very special human being, Yehuda Gelman, the founder and the CEO of Highway of Hope. I'm going to let him introduce himself because he's going to do a much better job than I can. Hi, Yehuda. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, for sure. So give me a bit of background about yourself. How did you start your organization? What kind of services you provide? Give me the whole deal. Okay, so... I was born with a condition called hydrocephalus. It's excess fluid on the brain. And about seven or eight years ago, I started working for an organization called the Hydrocephalus Association. They are specific towards helping individuals with hydrocephalus. Their primary function is education and research, educating their patient population about the condition and researching to find a better treatment and eventually a cure. I was intrigued with the way the organization is run. In my circles growing up, we never had an organization that focused on, you know, finding treatments or cures. So it it was new territory for me, and I really enjoyed it immensely and wanted to get involved. My first year working with them, they told me I had to go to an event called the Rare Disease Week. It's the last week in February. And at that event, that week-long event, they bring together advocates from all across the country. And the premise is that you go to Congress to get increased funding for research for various rare conditions. Just by way of explanation, there are roughly 7,000 known rare conditions. A rare condition in the United States is classified as any condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people. That number does grow. And also shrinks, meaning as more patients are diagnosed with a certain condition, they'll lose the rare disease designation as a new condition gets a name and gets traction in that regard, you'll have a new condition come into the, uh, onto the repertoire. And there I was with roughly 600 advocates, each one representing a disease-specific organization. They were there with one singular focus of treatment to eventual cure for their child, for their spouse, for their loved one, for their friend. And it was so unique. And I said that I had to get involved while bringing in my childhood and the organizations that I was familiar with, where their premise is the today, the helping the patients be comfortable today and melding that together with the fact that those organizations are all focused on tomorrow and a brighter future for those children. That's kind of when I made the decision to go off on my own. We officially launched in 2018. I still do consulting for the Hydrocephalus Association. I do consulting for other disease-specific organizations. And what our focus at Highway of Hope 
is that we seek to be a little bit of a middleman and also the uh, a gap filler. What that would mean in real-world practicality, that would mean if an organization exists specific to a certain condition, we would help and the patient contacted us prior to contacting that disease-specific organization. Our first step would be connecting them with that disease-specific organization. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're not going to learn everything there is to know about a condition per se, in effort to educate those patients, we would build the relationship with that organization and we could kind of liaise between the two of them. That's number one. In that same regard, if there's an organization that has certain resources that they afford to their patient population, but one of their patients needs something else, we will try to help them fill that gap. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So, Make it real for us. Tell me a really good story from when you founded the organization. What's your favorite story from everything? <laughs> uh, so hard many stories. Question, right? <laughs> That's a very hard <laughs> I question. I will I, I will kind of digress for, for a little bit just to kind of tell you the, the genesis of the organization and how I ended up coming up with the name. And sure. I think it both pales beautifully into the story that I'm going to share is the fact that so I was at my first rare disease week. I was fresh with the Hydrocephalus Association, and we were at a uh, strategy dinner prior to going to Congress, and the dinner was at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. I left the restaurant and started traveling back to my hotel in Silver Spring, Maryland, which, according to the GPS, was going to be about 15 minutes, a couple of miles, no big deal. It's cutting through a park similar to how in New York we have Central Park. I get into the car and I start driving and I'm about to make my turn to go into the park. There's a big sign that says that the road's closed from dusk to dawn. I continue driving, you know, technology, the GPS redirects, and it sends me on a 45-minute drive. But it's at night. It's a beautiful night. I'm relaxed. I'm going to head back to the hotel, you know, kind of put everything together. And I'm on this highway going through Virginia to get back to my hotel in Silver Spring. I'm on the John F. Kennedy Memorial Highway. It's a two-lane highway. It was beautifully paved road, but it was pitch black. You know, no street lights whatsoever. And I find myself, I'm, according to the GPS, I'm going to be on the highway for about 20 miles, give or take. And as I'm traveling, I kind of notice that I'm the only car on the road. Think nothing of it. You do your own thing. And while I was driving, the GPS stopped working. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of so, so a little bit of panic, like you're gonna slow, so you slow down, like, did I miss my exit? Where am I? And then the music that I was listening to, and I was listening to on, uh, I was streaming music on my phone, that stopped as well. So I kind of freaked out a little bit. I thought maybe my phone was broken. I tried making a phone call, I couldn't, there was no reception. And oh in my, my mind, what was going through my mind, I'm saying it's 10 o'clock at night, I'm on a highway that I don't know. And like all of a sudden panic set in and I was like, okay, now is when the deer is going to jump out. I'm going to crash into the deer. I'm going to swerve <laughs> and I'm going to go off the road and nobody's going to find me until the next day. Oh my goodness. I'm so, so stressed as listening. <laughs> so I, I, so I slowed down. I was like inching. I was like, okay, I'm going to get off the next exit. I don't know where I am. I'm going to get off. I'm going to find the gas station. I'm going to ask somebody. I wasn't thinking rationally, kind of understandable. Um, I'm in an area that I'm not familiar with, with no map whatsoever. And then I notice a car ahead of me. And again, I wasn't thinking so rationally. And I kind of like sped ahead 
I sped off to try to catch up to the car. And as I'm trying to catch up to the car, I noticed cars coming in behind me. So I realized, okay, I'm not the only car on the road. And I could kind of slow down. And because there are others out there with me. And if I do, you know, go off the side of the road, somebody's going to find me a little bit earlier. That's when the GPS turned back on. The music started streaming again. Everything was fine. Turns out I didn't even miss my exit, which was incredible. I got to the hotel, otherwise uneventful. You know, didn't even add extra minutes besides the 45 that it was supposed to have taken with that detour. And I got to the hotel and that's when it hit me. And I said that that's the journey of a parent with a child with a rare disease. That's the journey of an individual with a rare disease. They kind of have their life mapped out. They have it all envisioned in their mind. They're going to go and they're going to, you know, they're going to have a boy and the boy's going to go to this school so he could play in the varsity team and he's going to be on the Yankees. He's, you know, he's going to minors and then he's going to make it to the majors. He's going to be on the Yankees, right? It's all planned out. Or he's going to go to this Ivy League school and he's going to be this lawyer, this doctor. And then they hit that first bump in the road, that first bump where it's like everything's not as they had planned. They kind of say, okay, we're going to go with the flow. We're going to continue on in this kind of new path. It's still charted for us. So we're not going to this school. We're going to go here because my kid has a little bit of a learning disability or a delay or whatever it might have been. But that's when the problems start increasing for them. The journey for the rare disease patient does span on average about three years from when the parent or the patient themselves realizes that something's a little off until they get a definitive diagnosis. It can take upwards of three years. And I think that it's so appropriate that here they go and they're on this highway and they're alone. There's no other cars. There's nobody else out there with them. In their mind, they're the only ones doing this journey. Then they see somebody up ahead. So they're going to rush to try to be there and be with that person, kind of, you know, go along on the journey with them. Obviously, they're not going to be able to catch up to the car ahead of them. But then they notice cars behind them. And on a subliminal level, on a, on a subconscious level, they realize that there's somebody that is further behind them on their journey. Wow. And they're going to slow down and kind of be there for that person. And they're going to go on that journey together. So this community that is rare disease is one that fosters that even though their conditions kind of are different from one another, vastly different. Some are neurological, some are orthopedic, some are physical or developmental, when they fall under this umbrella of rear, it fosters a community. And so kind of to that end, to go to go to your question of the story that, oh, so by the way, so that's how we got the name of Highway of Hope. Amazing. I love it. That's a great story behind the name. I appreciate that. So kind of in that regard, I understood right when I started that in order to help patients with rare conditions, we can't follow the you know, the tried and true method. Of course, we're going to go down that road, but we have to be willing to trailblaze in new areas. And it actually popped up into my Facebook memories today. So the appropriateness of it is astounding. And that is that three years ago today, I was in Washington, D.C. at my first ever World Orphan Drug Congress. The World Orphan Drug Congress, the premises, they bring together biotech and pharmaceutical companies from all across the globe with the intention of fostering better research and kind of a, a sharing of ideas on which conditions they're going to focus on. 
and garner, whether it's funding from the federal government, from state government, or just creating a level of awareness. The entry fee for that event was a couple of thousand dollars, and I snuck in. <laughs> I, had snuck in. <laughs> I snuck in with the intention of actually going to meet one person who I knew was in the neighborhood. I have an office in D.C. at the time. I was still working for the Hydrocephalus Association. They're based in Washington, so I was on my way there anyway. I figured if I can't get in, I'm going to just go to the office. It is what it is. And I had snuck in. I feel like all great stories start with, and I snuck in, right? (laughs) None start off, and I had my, you know, I boiled my cup of tea. Amazing. (laughs) So I had snuck in. I went to see this individual who I knew was going to be at the event. And I'm on my way out, and I bumped into a few other people, advocates who I know from previous years. We kind of got to schmoozing, and one of the event coordinators saw me without my ID tag and said, excuse me, um, either pay or get get out. And as I was like debating to pay it, like I said, I'm not, it was a dollar amount that I couldn't, I couldn't deal with. As I was like, you know, debating back and forth, one of the advocates that I was there with actually turned to the coordinator and said, do you know who this guy is? You know, he cares so deeply about the entire rare disease community. He would be a real asset for you guys to have. Why don't you invite him in, give him a little bit of a discount, right? Maybe I'll convince him to stay. So she, she spoke to her supervisor, ended up letting me stay on condition that I hear a Q&A session with a couple of advocates. So okay, it's a fair deal. Of, of that session. And at the end of that session, I met with a woman. Uh, a woman came over to me and she was from the FDA. And we kind of got to speaking about various conditions and the drug approval process and the difficulties that impact the approval process and why it is so slow. And, you know, it's kind of appropriate recording this, hopefully towards the end of Corona, with kind of hearing how expedited the COVID vaccine, whereas other drug development, you hear it takes years and years and years. And this time I kind of got the picture as to why it takes so long. The reality of it is as the condition is so rare, and there are few participants that could potentially be involved with a clinical trial, they can't really rule out, you know, side effects or ill effects. So that's kind of why the approval process takes the length that it does. And one of the medications that were pending approval was a medication used to treat spinal muscular atrophy. And at the time, there was a drug already approved for SMA. But that medication is a medication that a patient would have to take on a yearly basis, whereas this medication would be it's a one-dose medication. And it was so exhilarating that there's such breakthroughs in medicine and how we really can increase the quality of life of these patients, even by way of not having to go to the hospital on a yearly basis for their treatment. I did know of one person, a patient that I had met a while back with SMA. So I was intrigued by it. And I kind of said, what do you need to, you know, help coax the process along both with SMA? And we were dealing with a drug for cystic fibrosis and a drug for ALS. And she said, we need more test subjects. And I said, if I get you more test subjects, would that expedite the process? And she said, potentially. So I, I worked with various SMA organizations to attempt to increase their patient population in the clinical trials. And in 2019, that drug did get approved. And actually, a couple of months after it got approved, there was a story 
in my local community where there was a child who was about to turn two years of age, which is the cutoff for that drug. And they were seeking funding so that they could get this drug. Yes, drug I remember does, that. That that drug does cost $2.1 million, which on face value actually seems like a tremendous dollar amount. To put that into the fact that from you know research and development, a pharmaceutical company is looking at upwards of three hundred to four hundred million dollars to get a drug to market at minimum. And considering the fact that a condition, like I said, SMA is a rather rare condition, and it's made even rarer by the fact that this medication is only approved for children under the age of two, kind of to help them recoup their rather simply just to recoup the funding that they actually spent does kind of warrant that kind of dollar amount. And when I saw that campaign going, I was I, I was excited because I knew that I was instrumental and my team was instrumental in helping get that drug to market at such a pivotal time. So wow. that 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 would probably be one of the stories that really showcase it. Yeah. And I remember when that story went viral and the mother posted that video it was so heart wrenching and it was so nice that it all it, they were able to raise the money and get that drug and to hear that you and your organization were involved in that that's that's amazing so let's talk a little bit more about the details of, of what you do every day what would you say is like the most satisfying or inspirational part of what you do what part of what you did you enjoy the most what i enjoy most is helping patients come to their understanding that there's hope for tomorrow and and how do you help them do that so we we do that in a myriad of ways it can be by helping them get into clinical trials, helping them with educating them about their condition because they had a preconceived notion about devastating their condition might be, but there was a breakthrough that they didn't know about. Or it could be as simple, I say it, it's as simple, but in, in fact, that's probably one of the most difficult aspects, is helping them come to their why. What I mean by that is, is that any individual once impacted by a setback have a tendency to kind of ask, why me, right? Or why did this happen? And if we could help them kind of come to that, that understanding of, you know, this is why, or maybe this is why, it helps them see a brighter tomorrow. Wow, that's amazing. What would you say your biggest day-to-day challenge is and how do you overcome it? The biggest challenge is actually hearing the despair in the voices of the people that I interact with on a daily basis, the patient themselves, the family, and oftentimes even the clinicians, just the despair of knowing that there is you know, no viable treatment is so painful. And in terms of what I do to overcome it, it's actually, that's an excellent question. It's something that I struggle with on a daily basis. The thing that does help me get through it and our team get through it is when we find another resource to help those people, you know, through their despair, even if it's just momentarily, that kind of helps us achieve a semblance of, of like, we passed this hurdle. And if we pass this hurdle, we could pass the next hurdle. We break it up into, into kind of like bite-sized, um, digestible pieces, as it were. Wow, that's great. I think that that's amazing advice, probably for anyone in the nonprofit space that's working with people who are going through challenging times. I never heard it said that way, but breaking it up into steps. That's, I think that's, that's fantastic. So that was your day-to-day challenge. What would you say is your biggest big picture challenge when it comes to running your organization? Oh, that's probably the best question I've Pick ever one. received. Pick one. Of them. <laughs> you know, I could just say, you know, money. 
Um, yeah, that is the answer. <laughs> but, but I don't think I, that doesn't do justice. The greatest big picture challenge is, is awareness. And awareness about two factors. Number one, about the conditions themselves. But also, there's this notion, it's this mentality, it's a pervasive mentality all throughout society of how individuals with medical issues are seemingly second-class citizens. And it kind of creates this two-way street. It's the, we'll call them the able-bodied community or the non-medically challenged community have this perception about people that have to go spend a couple of hours or a couple of weeks out of a year in a hospital. They have this mindset about them. And even if it's subconscious, they infuse their environment with that mindset. And then the patient themselves kind of pick up on that and they feel about themselves that they're second-class citizens. And it's heart-wrenching. And it's really, it's the insult to the injury. It's unfortunate enough that they're impacted with that condition, but now they understand that the unemployment rate, while the unemployment rate in the United States, as of when we last ran our, our study, which was in 2019, we actually ran a quick study where the unemployment rate was around 4.3%, whereas the unemployment rate for people with what we'll call complex medical conditions hovered around 62%. It's so unfortunate because now on top of, like I said, besides that insult and the injury, but now they also can't afford their medical treatment, which right. puts, them, like it, it puts them that <laughs> further behind the eight ball. Right. Um, so wow. so that's, that's our by far our greatest challenge raising awareness that these individuals are people and can be not only functioning members of society, but really can bring real world benefits to society. I think that, that leads me right into, right into my next question is, what does the world look like when you've achieved your organization's mission? I think you're kind of describing that now, right? I, I am. It would create a world of, I would say unity, but it's, it's more than that. It creates a world where everybody understands that not only that those individuals could be functioning members of society, but let's kind of twist it a little bit and say that there's actually an added benefit to having, you know, individuals with certain conditions. Case in point, we actually helped in, this was even before I started, I helped an individual, in, this is in 2017, I helped somebody get a job. This person was wheelchair bound due to a neuromuscular condition. And the employer was kind of back and forth as to why they should hire this person. And they were looking at the potential liability and whatnot. And we set tone, myself and the patient, we set the tone where the fact that this individual is wheelchair bound means that they're going to spend more time by their desk. Yeah, it might take them a little longer to get to their desk, but they're going to spend more time at their desk, which means they're going to be much more productive. And when we tweaked it like that, this individual's got the job. It's now, like I said, it's three years. This person is still working for that company, actually moved up two rungs on the ladder, is indispensable within that corporate culture. But that's a slow process. Uh, to do it as a, as a one-on-one, yeah, it works. And I have the success stories. I do have the failures. What the world looks like when we achieve that is one where we're not looking at the fact that the person's in a wheelchair or blind or deaf and see the innate abilities that that person has to help within that corporate culture or, you know, just in society in general. Wow. That, that sounds like it would be quite an accomplishment. So now a bit of a fun question. If somebody handed you a blank check and said, 
fill it out however much money you want. Do whatever you want with it. What would you do? Where would you put the money? Did, <laughs> did I stump you on this one? <laughs> yeah, you stumped me. Oh, <laughs> so I would venture to say, you know, I would put it into a huge awareness campaign. Of course, first company that comes to mind would be 14 Minds. No, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to try to buck the trend a little bit. And okay. there's a story that I heard. It's a folklore I don't know if it's true. It's an urban legend, whatever you want to call it. There was a story that was said that Bill Gates's, you know, high school classmate bumped into him and said, you know, he's starting this business venture and he wanted to know if Bill Gates could get involved and whatever. And Bill kind of heard him out and said, look, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to invest in your company, but I see this potential to it. So I'll give you seed money. I wrote him a check for $15,000. And this guy bumped into Bill Gates a time later. And Bill System is like, look, I know $15,000 is not a lot for me, but I also, I'm very on top of my money. And I know that you never cash the check. So if you were so desperate for cash, what happened? He said, I'll tell you, I was actually on my way to the bank to cash the check. And I'm about to walk over to the teller with the deposit slip and the check. And then they think me, I have a check that the name on the top of the check and the signature say Bill Gates. I turned around and instead of going to the teller, I went to the loan officer. I said to the loan officer, hey, I need a loan for $50,000. And he looked at my banking and said, we're sorry, we can't give you. He's like, look, I have a check from Bill Gates. Yeah, it's not 50, it's 15, but he's a friend of mine, right? He got a check for $15,000. You know, you could give me the loan for 50. And the guy gave the loan for 50. Oh, I like that. And then he turned around and then he turned around and ran out and went to another bank. And he said, I got a loan for 50. I need a loan for, you know, 110. And that's the way I started my business. And let me tell you, we just, you know, we just hit $130 million in revenue, whatever. Right. Like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a folklore. I believe that's a good story. <laughs> um, in, in that regard, that blank check, I'd probably write it out for $4 and 31 cents. And it would be the price of a cup of coffee a very good cup of coffee. And the rationale behind that is I have seen throughout my years working with patients and doctors and business owners, the power of that cup of coffee. And I'd want that message to be broadcasted to the whole world. When you come to a place, bring them a cup of coffee. When there's the family, you know, sitting in despair, in fear in the surgical waiting room, bring them that coffee. Calm them down a little bit, right? Show them that you're there for them. And it kind of goes back to your previous question of what the world would look like if everybody would know that I was <laughs> that I was given the ability to write a check for, you know, untold millions and I wrote a check for 431. First, they'd think I'm crazy. But second, then they'd actually try to hear why I did that. And I think that that would translate into far more money than that check could actually have been written out to. That's a great answer. I love that answer. Really not what I was expecting, but I, I love it. It really speaks to, I think, what you're trying to accomplish. So I'm impressed with that one. Okay, so if somebody wants to contact you, if they think either they need the help of your organization or to talk to you more about what you do, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? We have attempted to make it super easy. I understand, again, I go back to the beginning of our conversation. I myself am a patient and I understand that how uncomfortable it is to ask for help. And in that regard, we have attempted to make it as easy as possible. 
we opened up every potential channel of communication. You could email us. You could connect with us directly on our website. The website is hwofhope.org. Perfect. You could connect with us on WhatsApp, on Instagram, on Facebook Messenger, on Twitter, LinkedIn. We literally have opened up every path of communication. You want to give us a phone call, give us a phone call. You know, voice note on WhatsApp, that's fine also. Whatever makes you comfortable, we're here to be there for you. Amazing. Amazing. So I want to leave off with one last profound question. What is the one thing that you want the world to know about you, about your work, about your organization? Leave me with one thing. I set the bar high with profound, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I have faith. When I came up with the name Highway of Hope, you know, I shared with you and your listeners the journey that I took that kind of helped me come to that name. The part of the story that might have, you know, been missed is the fact that the road that I was on was a beautifully paved road. What that should have showed me is that there were people, even though it's not right at this minute, there were countless people before me that were on this journey. So the message that the profound message, like you did say, you set the bar very hard. But I believe (laughs) that the message that, that I'd want to leave with everybody is that you can make a difference, right? You might not see it, but you might not realize it. You might, you may never realize it. The fact that you traveled on that road showed the next person that they could travel that road. So you continue doing your thing. You focus on your business. You focus on your nonprofit. You focus on your mission. Because even if your mission will not help the next person, but it will give that next person the ability to say, okay, wait a minute. If he could do that, I could do this. So continue your journey. Your journey is going to be hard. My journey is certainly not, you know, no picnic. But I do believe that everybody has their road to travel. And if we're all, you know, traveling, ultimately makes it much smoother. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I really, really enjoyed that. And I think that anyone who listens is really going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for being here. I hope we'll do it again soon. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or comments, or if you are a nonprofit leader who is interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help you, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me by email at sivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com to subscribe to our mailing list.